You can support this podcast on patreon.com forward slash firstpawmedia. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF. Make sure you check us out online at First Paw Media and make sure you download our previous episodes over at mushingradio.com. And I am joined tonight by my co-host, Tony, who is calling in from Kenai, Alaska. Tony, how's it going today? Going really well. We got a little bit of snow uh, over the weekend, but not enough for me to actually go shovel anything. So I'm just staying cozy at home. Yeah, it is turning out to be a beautiful winter up here in Willow. And sadly, I am on light duty over the next couple of weeks or so (laughs) after having a uh, pretty big nasal surgery. So hopefully I will be back out on the sled dog trails before we know it and enjoying this beautiful weather. It's been warm, uh, at least by Alaska standards. We have not had any snow up here of any accumulation since that big dump at the beginning of December. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're going to get much more, but it's still early to go. And I know that there are sled dog races happening And for folks who are subscribing to our show, you've probably heard our previews and recaps. We've talked about the Connect 200. We've talked about the Gunflint Trail. We've talked about the Copper Basin. We've talked about the Alpine Creek excursions. All sorts of content is being laid down for your listening pleasure. But tonight, this is our regularly scheduled bi-weekly podcast. And we're going to start this show off with a public service announcement, if you will. (laughs) Tony, I know that you have seen this going on on social media, on Facebook in particular. Uh, I've had quite a few conversations with mushing friends about uh, what to do with it happening, and it's turning into quite the chore. So I'm going to break it down for folks, and I, I think that this is really important because the folks that this will affect not only are the mushers involved, but of course, it's the diehard fans who will buy some of this stuff. Uh, And what's happening is, I don't know if it's scammers, I don't know if it's bots, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, the worst of the worst in the mushing community that are doing this for personal gain, but a heck of a lot of sled dog kennels out there are being bombarded with fake merchandise links. And I know Brenda Mackey, my neighbor Vern Halter, and I'm sure you know many others that we can talk about in just a second. But what's happening is somebody is going out and grabbing these Kennels logos and then putting it on shirts from places like Printify or something like that, typically an on-demand printer. And supposedly... Uh, they are being redirected back to these scam sites and people are buying the stuff and sometimes it's being delivered, sometimes it's not. But what's more important to this story is fans are calling on to these reputable kennels and saying, hey, 
so-and-so. I ordered a shirt or two several weeks ago. I didn't get it. What's going on? Are you going to send me my stuff or are you scamming me or what? And it's really putting them into a weird position. Before we talk about trademarks and copyrights and all of the business side of this, what are your thoughts on this? Because I know that you have been involved, at least on the sidelines with this, for the last few weeks. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Um, they're going back, these little spam bots, I think is what they are. Um, they're going back in time to like posts from two and three years ago even, and they're just hitting all of the posts on the different race pages and the kennel pages, and they tag everybody who commented on a post. And they say, hey, buy our stuff. And it's, it, it, the, the website looks legit. My understanding is most of those people that have bought stuff, they've gotten something with the whatever logo appeared on the shirt or the mug. Um, but the quality is really poor, as expected. Um, they're ridiculously high priced in most cases. And the big thing is none of that money is going to the kennel that you thought you were supporting. It's going to whatever little scammer who thinks they're so cool and funny um, is, is pocketing all of that. And so it's one of those things we're seeing more of the races and more of the kennels like Pete, Kate, Pete Kaiser uh, posted today, you know, it just came to their attention that people are getting hit, you know, buy our merchandise. We don't have an online store. We'll let you know if we end up having an online store. Um, and we're seeing that more and more as more of the mushers who do not spend a whole lot of quality time on social media. Big shocker there are, are realizing that these comments that are going on on their page aren't all legit comments. A lot of them are spam. Yeah, and, and it's really tough to moderate a, a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. I have several Facebook pages for my businesses and groups and podcasts and the whole nine yards. And, and it's it's uh, it's dang near a full-time job to make sure you're on the up mm -hmm. and up. And that's for just regular old comments, not talking about <laughs> spam or anything like yep. that, but just, you know, making sure everybody's playing nice is is a lot of work. So first off, let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the business side of this. First off, many, many people out there do a very legitimate business using this model. You can set up an Etsy shop, you can go to Printify, you can download your logo, and they will print your shirts on demand, and then you get some type of uh, portion of that. And like you said, Tony, they're typically very expensive because... Number one, you're paying for the shirt, you're paying for the site, and you're paying for your cut of it. And like I said, there's lots of people that do this on the up and up, but it looks like these bots or these scammers are doing the same thing. So they're taking the logos from these folks, uploading it to something like Printify that prints on demand, and then they put it up there for the world and they're getting some type of residual, whether it's two or three bucks from a shirt or whatever. So the ones that were delivered, that's probably how this is working. And you would never know it's happening unless something happened like is what's happening right now. So sadly, that's that's really smack him in, him in the face. And I'm talking about the kennels. But let's talk a little bit about trademarks and copyrights. Any musher that's listening to this or anybody that has a brand, that is your most important asset. 
that is your intellectual property, that is your reputation, that is your brand, that is your mark, all of that. I highly suggest that you do your due diligence, you pay the few hundred dollars, whatever it takes to secure that brand, whether it's a trademark or a copyright or whatever. And I know I had a bunch of back and forth <laughs> messages with a big time musher who has been down this road before. And he said, mm-hmm. hey, the first off, most mushers don't have the money to do this. And second off, right. what's going to happen if, if they do do it? They don't have the money for big time lawyers mm-hmm. and times to face and all that. So in our recap show for the Copper Basin, we jumped into this topic in regard to photographs, how important it is to share and to, to give credit and all of that. What are your thoughts on this, Tony? And, and you guys can definitely go back and listen to that show. But what are your thoughts about trademarks and copyrights and logos and names? And, you know, especially for these big name kennels. I know Brenda Mackey was very vocal about this. And she was one of the first uh, few that that uh, were scammed or hit by this. She has a name that's synonymous with dog mushing. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe's kennel, whoever Joe is, may not have the following or the name that somebody like a Mackey would, but it's still the same. It's still your, your, your brand, your, your reputation. What are your thoughts on trademarks and securing your rights and all that, whether it's photographs or logos or names or websites or whatever? Well, with photographs, it's even more frustrating because you have to copyright every single one of those dumb things and that can get expensive. Um, So I kind of lean more towards Mitch's argument of really trademarks and that sort of thing. It's all well and good, but if you don't have the money to back it up, which most people don't, scammers still do it. I mean, look how many people are on Etsy, you know, selling stuff that's Disney related. And yeah, Disney will go after them once in a while. But for the most part, I can get a lot of good quality Disney merchandise, but not Disney merchandise from these places. So it it does feel like on one hand, I totally get it. I deserve to protect my stuff. Um, But on the other hand, most of the time, especially um, creative ways like photography and whatnot, you still own the copyright, even if you didn't pay the money for it. Um, It just becomes a bigger battle is my understanding. If I remember my very um, long ago business courses that I took and did not do very well in, in college. Um, So it was one of those things that I do remember going through that class and that being a topic of conversation. And really the answer was do what makes you feel better. Um, and not necessarily, you know, because even even the top brands or the top kennels aren't going to chase down every one of these. And with these scammers, it's just like those guys that are calling you saying that, you know, they're from the state troopers. And if you give them five gift cards of $100 each, then they won't take you to jail. People still buy into that, sure. But for the most part, you're not going to ever see those people be prosecuted because nobody seems to know where they are or have the resources to track them down. And in this particular case, it would be the same thing. These scammers are God knows where they're hidden by VPNs and all those other techie things that I don't understand. And it'd just be more hassle than it's worth. So 
um, I, I know that, you know, as long as you can prove that the logo is yours and not theirs, which may be your copyright, having that paperwork and paying those fees, maybe that helps you out a little bit, but I don't, I don't know that I would suggest spending that, but I also don't have a business degree. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course I'm going to be the exact opposite of that. And uh, I think it's very important to, to have that. And, you know, if, if you have to chase after, you have to chase after it. I, I definitely wouldn't want somebody opening up Alaska dog works down the road and, you know, swiping mm -hmm. my website and social media and saying that they right. are me. Uh, so we have protected ourselves that way. And as a matter of fact, the podcast you're listening to right now is trademarked and we paid for <laughs> uh, the rights and it's on the patent office and the whole nine yards. So if you can afford it, do it. Uh, if you can't, uh, you know, uh, figure out other ways. So I guess my last question on this before we jump into our next topic is what is the best thing for fans to do? Because they want to support their favorite mushers, their kennels, or, you know, the sport. How can folks make sure that they're getting legit stuff? You know, because a lot of people don't want to do those extra steps and, you know, call up uh, right. Brenda Mackey and say, hey, I would really like to support your kennel and I'd really like to buy a shirt. And, you know, because, you know, people don't talk on the phone anymore. Uh, they it's all text and instant gratification. And I want it right now. You know, Amazon is a billion dollar business twice over because of instant gratification yep. shopping. They see what they see. They click add to cart and within seconds, uh, you know, it, it's being shipped and delivered and you have it by prime the next day. So what are your thoughts? How can folks buy legitimate gear from these, uh, from these kennels? Well, not every kennel has merchandise. Brenda, you know, posted uh, saying, don't, don't buy any of this. It's not coming from me right now. I don't have anything to sell you. Um, so I think the best way to support these kennels is to go to their websites or their social media. However, they're most online. Um, those that have websites typically have some sort of merchandise available and you can order straight from the website if not on an online store, they have an email address that you just send, hey, how do I do this? They send you an invoice, do it over PayPal, really quick and easy. Very rarely are they going to be like, yeah, give me a call and we'll work something out because mushers are very much like me. And if they can stay off the phone, they will, in my experience. So that's one way. The other way to support is a lot of mushers are now doing dog sponsorships. So if you go onto their website, you go onto their social media, you can, for a fee, become part sponsor or total sponsor of one of the dogs on the team. And they typically have a program where I think it's every quarter. Some of them do it every month. It's whatever the musher comes up with, they send you a postcard of your dog with updates on how the dog is doing. Sometimes they send booties that the dog wore. Very fun, open, friendly stuff that's not necessarily going to take up a lot of space in your closet or your dresser drawer, but it's something that you can, you know, squirrel away, put it in. It's almost like a trading card. I think Black Spruce even has trading cards of their dogs. I want to say Matt Hall used to as well, or he had a deck of cards, one of the two. 
So there's a lot of other fun ways to financially support the kennels and get something physically back from them. Or you can always just send them a little uh, money through PayPal or however they have their donation button. Yeah. And a couple of other quick ways. I know that you use one called buy me a coffee and you have it called (laughs) buy me a slice of pizza, which is the same thing. (laughs) And this show uses Patreon, which is very similar to buy me a cup of coffee where a folk, uh, where folks can go on and support you, whether it's a one-time donation or a monthly donation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And often those types of programs have tiers. So if you do $5, you may get a sticker, $20, you may get a t-shirt, $100, maybe get your name on your website. And I know Jason Mackey has a brand new website and he has, mm-hmm. I believe it's gold, silver, and bronze sponsorship. So if you're the Gold sponsor, you get your logo on the truck and you get your name on Iditarod.com and the whole nine yards. So there are a lot of creative ways to support the sport of dog mushing. And Mm -hmm. I highly suggest everybody do their homework, do their due diligence. And my last point on this, and I may have said last the last (laughs) time, but... Isn't Iditarod using this type of model now, too, where they're doing some type of print-on-demand or some other filling, clearinghouse filling up, film, fulfillment center, whatever, for their merchandise this year? They did something like that last year with their really expensive cutting board. It was kind of like Patreon, but not really. And I didn't really look into it because I thought it was a little silly that they have these Iditarod yearly memberships, the ITC membership that gets you certain things. And then for a whole lot more money, you get way less, but hey, you get a a cutting board with a tiny Iditarod logo in the corner. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did a rod tried that. I think this year uh, they've gone back more to the model, but I'm not sure if they've like printed a ton of merchandise that's in the, the shops and that's what you're ordering online or if Voyage waits until they get a certain number of orders and then sends them all out. I, I want to say it's more towards the normal online store deal. Um, but I don't actually order online. I just wait until I did a rod and the I did a rod picnic, and then I just go to the gift shop when we're up there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess the title of this podcast should be "Buyer Beware When Buying yes. uh, Musher Merchandise." I think that's a good title. So I know we talked a long time about that, Tony, but this is our biweekly show, and we have some other <laughs> news and notes. Uh, more importantly, we are deep into, deep meaning almost a month now, uh, of the mushing season. A couple of big-time races have have gone on. We have a bunch more coming up. The Copper Basin just finished up last weekend. Next weekend, here in Alaska, we have the uh, Cusco 300 and the Willow 300 happening on the same weekend. We also have a race down in the lower 48 called the Eagle Cap Extreme. We have uh, several big-time sprint sprint mushing races happening. Lots and lots of mushing happening. And that's the way it goes, isn't it? It's sort of like the NFL. Every week, 
we are getting uh, a new race, uh, the the uh, thrill of victory and agony of defeat. It is truly mushing season, isn't it? It is. And like I told you before we went on air, um, this next uh, weekend, not this weekend, but the following weekend, it's, it's going to drive me crazy because trying to follow two 300 races just, it blows my mind every time, especially when it's the Willow and the Cusco, both big races, very important races, um, much loved by mushers and fans alike. So trying to keep them all straight is going to be so much fun. Thanks so much, race organizers. You had a weekend. This weekend's perfect. It's just playoff weekend. It's not like it's Super Bowl weekend for the NFL. We would have come out and watched your sports. But um, no, it's it's really exciting. Um, and I didn't remember to uh, say before we went on air that we also had the Bogus Creek 150 out there in the Bethel area this last weekend. And there is a young upstart musher who is just killing all of those races out there on the West Coast. Uh, he beat Pete Kaiser again for first place. And uh, so those are all exciting races. They all had to kind of jockey around with the, the weather being really cruddy there in December. So it's just been a lot of mushing, trying to keep it all straight. I obviously have done a poor job of that, but it's so much fun. And I hope all of the, the fans that listen in are enjoying it as much as we are. So... Am I correct that there didn't used to be an overlap uh, between the Cusco 300 and the Willow 300? I thought that the Willow 300 used to be the uh, part of the Willow Winter Carnival, which is, uh, I, I guess that is next week. It's it's typically over two weekends, <laughs> two weekends, and they do the um, they do the Willow 300 that first weekend, but that puts. Uh, logistical planning for mushers in, into a tight spot because both of those are 300s and having them on the same weekend can prove to be a little difficult, can't it? It can. And I think how they get away with it is not a lot of teams get to go out to the Cusco. They have a very small roster. Uh, they cap it at, I want to say, 25 or 30 mushers top. Um, and it's expensive to fly out there. So you're not going to have a whole lot of those early rookies trying to qualify for Iditarod unless they live closer to there than necessarily someone coming up from the lower 48 or someone here on the road system. When you can hit the, the Copper Basin and the Willow, you don't really need to go out to the Cusco. Why mushers go out there is because it's such a well-organized race. The purse is really nice and it's a challenging race. And they, a lot of them use it for training for Iditarod for the coast, because you're going to see that weather only at that time of year. So it's, I think one of those things where the willow can get away with overlapping, they don't start right at the same day. They do, uh, you know, start midweek whereas the Cusco is your typical weekend event. So as the Willow is winding down, the Cusco is ramping up. But yeah, I can remember a few years ago when the Testamina 200 kept trying to figure out how to change their date from the typical um, or traditional date because of weather concerns. It was, you had to almost get permission from the other established races. Can we borrow your weekend? Would that be a big deal if we tried? 
Um, so I, I don't know if there's still that same decorum as even 10 years ago, but I think what, what saves the willow and the cusco is just the logistics of everything. Yeah, and, and that happens all over the country, if not all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, those weekends. And as we mentioned, you only have uh, eight or 12 weekends to fit everything in, and they're always jostling. And it doesn't matter what type of type or class of mushing you're doing. Uh, you know, the, in, in the sprint world, they want to make sure that there is not another sprint race during the Rondi or the Open North American or the Limited North American or the Toke Race of Champions or the Eagle River Classic or <laughs> any of those other races. And, and that's why you typically don't have another race when they're doing the Yukon Quest. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. And of course, there's not typically any big time races happening during Iditarod. But there are usually a race or two after Iditarod, including the Kobuk. Mm-hmm. 440, which is typically the end of mushing season, at least in Alaska. So let's jump into the Yukon Quest. And we've talked a lot about the Yukon Quest during the off-season, even before last year's Iditarod. We were talking a lot about it. But did I see something that it looks like they want to play nice with each other and talk, at least during the off-season, about getting the show back on the road and having a big time race again. Did I miss something? I don't think you missed anything there. Uh, I think it was said more in passing than anything else that they are working to come to an agreement. Um, But the last that I saw, it was just, yeah, we're open for talks. Uh, It was posted, I believe, by the CBC, which is out of Canada. Um, They were doing kind of a pre-preview race uh, build up to their Canadian version of the Yukon Quest this year, which doesn't start for another few weeks. Um, and then you've got the Alaska Quest, who have said from the get-go that you know they'd love to work with it, but you know you got to meet us in the middle, and that's kind of where it ended last summer. Was nobody seemed to really want to compromise so much as you know it's just no, let's just do it the way that we said we wanted to do it. Um, so I, I don't know where it's going to go. I think it's very hopeful that they keep saying that on both sides of the border, that they're willing to talk, they're willing to work. The boards are different now than what they were a year ago. Uh, I believe they have a brand new executive director for the uh, Yukon Quest Alaska side. So things are changing, hopefully for the positive. Um, but I'm still not seeing a whole lot more movement other than, yeah, we're willing to talk. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure nothing will happen until after race season is over because they're all focused on that. It's not until April or May when everybody kind of takes a breath and goes, okay, let's start talking about next season. So putting you on the spot a little bit, as we did during the summer, what do you think? (laughs) Will there be a thousand mile Yukon Quest type, and remember they may change the name, who knows? What do you think? A thousand mile race or something similar in 2024? I think I answered last year the no, I didn't think that it would happen that soon. I want it to. I hope I'm wrong. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm not seeing any real movement towards that. But again, it right now is not that time to have that movement as they are both working on their 
uh, 450-mile race in Canada, the 550-mile race in Alaska. So I, you know, I want to be hopeful and say, yes, we'll have one in 2024. But I'm thinking 2025 would probably be more realistic. And interestingly enough, the, the Yukon Quest, what is it called? The Alaska Quest? Mm-hmm. The Alaska uh, Quest. Yukon Quest Alaska, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, they just recently released a um, change in the uh, in the trail, and it's, it's quite different than a typical Alaska side quest. Uh, it looks like, and they, I don't believe they've ever done this before, but they're going to run to circle which is a typical Yukon Quest checkpoint. And then they're going to turn around, go back to Two Rivers, and then they're going to go to North Pole, which is east of Fairbanks. And then they're going to go back to Fairbanks, down to Nenana, which is the start of the Serum Run and the couple of Iditarods that uh, went through there, uh, did a checkpoint in Nenana. And then they're going to go back I believe they're going to go back to Fairbanks to finish. That is a much different race than what we've seen before, especially hitting up the communities like uh, Ninana and North Pole as part of the quest. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting because they were uh, originally planning to go to Toke and Chicken and um, they wanted to do that last year too and had to do the same thing. They had to do a reroute. Uh, due to the trail conditions, I believe it was creeks and rivers that were not freezing up like they expected. And it sounds like that's what happened here. I noticed when I shared that information on Twitter that a few of the, I think, more recreational mushers jumped on and said, yeah, this may not go any better than their original plan. I don't, they didn't believe that anybody had actually looked at some of the proposed change of trail um, because the water's still open on those spots too. So it'll be interesting. I expect at least one more change possibly being announced probably closer to race day. Um, I think it's very wise to make the changes now though so that they can actually cut through and make the trail and get that all squared away so that if they do have to make another change, it's not the day before the race or two days before the race. Yeah. And my only thought on that, uh, if they do keep it the way it's proposed right now with the uh, North Pole and Nenana uh, portions of that, I'm, I'm sure that those will be checkpoints. And that is great for the fans because those are both mm-hmm. very easily access- accessible on the road system, of course. Uh, North Pole, as I mentioned, is east of Fairbanks by, I don't know what it is, 20 miles or so. And then Ninana, which is about an hour or so south mm-hmm. of Fairbanks. And it's also on the road system. So if a person really wanted to follow the race as a fan, they could easily hit up all the major checkpoints. They could go to Fairbanks for the start. They could go to Two Rivers. They could go to Circle. They could go back to Two Rivers. They could go to North Pole. They could go to Ninana, and then they could go back to Fairbanks. They could realistically follow almost the entire race, at least in terms of checkpoints, by using this proposed trail. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's really nice and interesting and definitely new to the quest. Most of the quests in the past, all of them really, uh, that's one of the things that the Yukon Quest liked to brag about. They were truly off-grid. They were truly out in the middle of nowhere. And and now, you know, they're they're on the road system here in Alaska. I assume they're pretty much on the road system there in Canada, too. I'm not as well-versed in that area. But it, it might be good. It might drum up more support for the race that they've seen wane in a few in the last few years. It, it could. I mean, that's one thing that you hear fans from all over the world say about both Iditarod and the Quest is, I would love to go, but do I really want to spend all of my vacation time and my savings coming to Alaska to see a start or a finish when I can't really see the teams in action because they're out in the middle of nowhere and it's a little too expensive to charter a plane and see them out on the trail. So in some ways, this is good. Um, but I, I really do miss that kind of wilderness the whole time, you know, never really knowing there's no real signal. We can't get updates every five minutes uh, through social media. So it'll be interesting to watch. It will. And I think, I think it would be great for the fans. I mean, you could literally travel in a rental car that entire route. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about the circle, but definitely on those, those more um, suburban type routes and you wouldn't just see uh you, you know like the restart of Iditarod it's over in two hours the ceremonial start is over in two hours so you may fly up here and spend thousands of dollars on hotels and rental cars and and uh you know airline tickets and all that and and literally see a couple of hours of of stuff but if you did it this way and yeah I agree with you going out into the wilderness is part of it but if you did it this way, if you came up to Alaska, man, you could have one heck of a vacation over a week <laughs> or so if you're a fan. And of course, if you're in North Pole, you could head up the the Santa Claus house or whatever it's called, Santa Village or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you could see a lot of mushing history in Fairbanks. You could even hit up the hot springs as you're heading out towards Two Rivers and all that. And, you know, whichever way that goes, it could be a lot of fun. So don't discount this if it's a go, at least from a fan's perspective. So last story or comment, Tony, a couple of shows ago, we did a new segment here on Mushing Radio, and we asked, what are the fans chattering about? And I know that you have a much greater pulse on the fan community than I do. Besides what we've already talked about, what is the chatter on musher twitter hashtag or facebook or whatever aside from racing and all that what's really happening out there in the social media world in the mushing community well you asked our listeners on twitter uh today what they were interested in and while you just said that we didn't really need to talk more racing uh the big question was about the Copper Basin 300, which I know we did our review show, but we wanted to spend a little more time and, and give a little more detail than what those quick shows uh, would offer. But in the Copper Basin 300, we have six teams drop out of the race or scratch. And it was due mainly to trail conditions uh, between Sourdough and Mears Lake. And that was mainly due to 
what mushers were calling punchy trail and moose holes. And I got a lot of questions all weekend long, but certainly they came back full force when you asked uh, what fans wanted to know about. And the big question is, how is it that six teams didn't make it through that section without injury, um, without having to, you know, with having to scratch, whereas the rest of the field managed to do that? Someone suggested, is it because the front runners didn't have as bad of a trail as the, the back of the pack? But we saw a lot of back of the packs with strong looking dog teams. So you're the musher, Robert. What's your opinion? And give us a little detail on what punchy trail really is and what moose holes are, because it's not moose jumping out of holes. It's not that. They're not gophers. But uh, just just give our fans a little a little insight on what mushers are talking about. Right. Uh, there, there's a lot there uh, based on just what you said. Punchy trail could mean a couple of different things. It could be overflow. It could be too warm of temperatures. Overflow meaning that there's water on top of ice, which causes, of course, open water or slush which is one thing that uh, is very common in the sport. It doesn't matter if it's 50 below. I remember when we were out doing the serum run, it was 50 below zero on the Yukon River, and we had overflow up to our chest, uh, which was pretty much open water on the Yukon. So that could be one version of Punchy Trail. Another version of Punchy Trail is what you said, and I know this is very common on Iditarod, especially as they're going down the steps and you know, some of those narrower passages down through the gorge is punchy trail means, hey, you have 10, 10, 15, 20 teams in front of you who are just munching up that trail, whether it's breaks or drags or dog feet or whatever. Uh, That punches the trail up, making it slower and um, a little bit more difficult for those in the back. Moose holes are a problem every year, especially when we have as much snow as we have this year. Moose are animals of convenience. They take the least, uh, the least uh, version of of um, of the trail that they can. Meaning, if they have this fancy groomed pack down trail, they're going to cruise down that trail. Uh, instead of punching through shoulder-deep snow to a moose, which is a lot of snow. Uh, moose really struggle when the snow is this tough. So they they take the highways of Alaska, meaning mushing trails and snow machine trails. And if you're a thousand-plus, two-ton almost animal, <laughs> it doesn't matter how packed down the trail is, they're going to punch through that packed snow and it's a dangerous situation i know that we are always worried about moose holes out on our trails and typically if we're going out on relatively short runs we will take our snow machine out and run around the block as i call it and pack down some of those moose holes because they can be up to a foot deep and you know it's the size of a moose hoof which is you know a a size six shoe or so it's a, a decent size hole, and it, it it's uh, it's more by chance than anything. If a dog uh, falls into one of those holes, if you will, I mean, it could be very dangerous to dog teams. There's been dog teams that broken legs and the whole nine yards, but more common than not, since the dog teams are going at a pretty fast clip, often they are catching a portion of this hole 
uh, whether it's their foot or their shoulder. And it's, you know, it's kind of like slipping on the ice. You, you may not hurt something per se, but it gets sore after a while, especially if, you know, if you're dodging holes and stepping in holes and going through punchy snow. And I know several of these mushers, mainly uh, the ones that are pretty active on social media and, and scratched, they said, hey, lots of moose holes, lots of punchy trail. And they scratched because they had sore shoulders or wrists or feet or lame back ends or whatever. And often you don't see that uh, like like uh, like you think you would because, you know, you're, you're cruising down the trail. There's a little bit of sleep deprivation the whole nine yards. And you don't see it until... Uh, till you pull into the checkpoint. And, and I know from all of my years of experience, uh, dogs, uh, sled dogs in particular, they're very good at masking their injuries or their their pains. They'll just keep on going until they can't go anymore. And it's our job as mushers to make sure that we know what to look for, number one, and then number two, take care of them when they get into the checkpoint. And I don't recall which one it was, Tony, but they got into the checkpoint and said to the vet, hey, I want a full orthopedic exam on, I don't know if they said all of our dogs or these particular dogs. And they did that and they found out that several of their dogs were pretty sore and they had to scratch. It was that Riley or uh, who was that? Do you that recall? I think, I, I think that was Jeff Dieter. Jeff he Dieter. had noticed it in a couple of dogs. And then by the time he got into the checkpoint, um, and asked the vets, the vets were like, and these dogs over here too. And, you know, he'd been so focused on the two that he had seen out on the trail that, you know, it was just minor. They didn't really think anything of it, but like Jeff said, he's got the Cusco, he's got other races that, you know, he needs to think about and he needs to think about the dogs. He's already posted that, you know, they're on the road to recovery. They've got all their little, chiropractor type massage things going on and the dogs are all looking peppy and happy and he's already seeing them bounce back so it's a big positive um i'm really impressed with how quickly all of the mushers noticed but i think you know with everyone i don't think there's a musher out there that didn't say that that stretch of trail wasn't one of the worst that they'd seen for moose holes in particular and the fact that because of the trail not setting up correctly, there was a lot of sugar snow, that it just, it really made all of the teams a little gun shy. They went a little bit slower through that. Um, I think Brent Sass was the one that said they weaved through a lot of that section because they could tell where the bad spots of the moose tracks were. So just all of that, you know, I mean, there was a lot of extra technical stuff for that race that if you're, a, if you were a rookie on that race or you were looking to use that to qualify for Iditarod, you have done, gone through one of your final exams. I'm just calling that right now because it does not sound like it was a super highway. And, and that's, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Uh, you you want to make mm -hmm. sure that, uh, that these guys are understanding what they're getting into. And if it was exactly. J Jeff Dieter, that, that's a, he's a professional musher. He knows what's going on. And he knew yeah. to have the foresight to say, hey, uh, it's better for us to scratch here uh, because we have other things happening, whether it be another race in a couple of weeks or a rebuilding team or whatever. But it's very easy uh, especially if you are trying to qualify or you're in the money, so to speak, or whatever, to have kennel blindness is, is my best term for it. 
uh, you know, sort of that 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 race uh, mentality with blinders on, uh, where you're saying, nope, we got to do this, uh, we're going to finish, and so on and so forth. And it it takes time to develop that that sense where you're saying, ah, it's not that bad, but we we need to scratch or, or vice versa. But I don't know how many times, Tony, that I have been out on a race or a training run or whatever, and then one dog goes lame and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, I can bag one and then a second one uh, comes up lame or gets a sore shoulder. Okay, I can bag two, but what happens when three or four uh, go lame and you're, you know, 50 miles from the next checkpoint? Uh, it, It can make for an interesting time. And then, you know, what do you do? And I think it was, again, going back to Jeff, I think he said, yeah, we probably could have continued, but we only had seven dogs and we had X number of miles, 100 miles or 150 yep. or whatever it was. Uh, we had to scratch because we just didn't have the power to to finish right. with, with just those few dogs. So there's a lot of technical um, stuff that we could talk about, but that is sort of the long and short of Uh, trail conditions and uh, technical racing. It's not just going out there and jumping on the back of the sled and, uh, you know, going from checkpoint to checkpoint. It's uh, a heck of a lot of stuff in between. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it it was definitely, I think, the right call for all six teams. Uh, I don't think it, it necessarily means, you know, one team is better than the other. It's just one of those things, like you said, the way that they're running, they're they're either going to run over and skip over those holes, or they're they're going to fall into them even partially, and that's probably where most of the muscle soreness comes from—not stepping fully into it, but riding themselves. So, it's it's just one of those things we see it all the time. You you see it on Iditarod, you see it in the Knick, the Copper, the Cusco, sore wrists, sore shoulders, and at the end of the day, if the dog isn't having fun, then you need to stop, take a break, take a breath, see if, you know, it's one of those things that it just needs an, an extra hour and it can, you know, work itself out. Or if it's time to call it a day, whether or not you've got sponsors back home expecting you to finish, if the dogs aren't having fun, you need to stop because otherwise you're you're not in it for the right reason. It's all about the positivity and and the the bond between your dog and you will lose that trust from your team if they can't trust you to make that right call. That's exactly right. Uh, any other uh, mumblings, gossip out there in the uh, social media world that we need to make public? Uh, the it's not gossip, but the only other question you got from your Twitter, uh, you know, wondering if anybody had questions was, what color are Moose's eyes? <laughs> okay. Okay. I I believe I believe they're brown, but I think one of the mushers, if if I'm not mistaken, uh one of the mushers mushers posted something on Facebook this week where they got a drone shot or something of a pack of moose up by, up by Fairbanks and they had one of those Ooh. albino mooses. I forget what they're called. Moose, whatever they are. Um, and <laughs> that I, I think this was fishing game that said that. And they said that even okay. the albino ones, they still have brown eyes unless it's a different kind of genetic mutations. And they got the picture of the, the lighter moose. I don't know if it was white or just kind of really light tan. 
but he was out there with uh, with a bunch of brown ones. So I I am going with brown. Are you going the same? Uh, you know, my dad is an avid hunter, and he also helps with the roadkill program here on the Kenai Peninsula. And so I have seen my fair share of moose, and they are brown unless they are angry. And then I swear they're coal black, and it's like jaws, and they're coming to murder you. But um, all jokes aside, they, they are a very beautiful shade of brown. Very good. Anything else before we close? I think we've covered it. Yeah, this is a long show, guys. I really appreciate uh, being back on our bi-weekly show. We will be back for our race coverage, so make sure you hit those subscribe buttons wherever you're listening. We are on all of the podcast players. And interestingly enough, more and more people are asking if we are on Spotify. And we are on Spotify. Just search Mushing Radio. Mushing Radio is its own feed. I know somebody asked on Twitter earlier in the week, what the heck is First Paw Media, Dogworks Radio, Mushing Radio? Where do I find it? You find it by searching Mushing Radio on all of the podcast players. It will pop up and you can subscribe there. But as Tony said, Mushing Radio is Dogworks Radio, which is First Paw Media. Guys, it's just the, the logistics of being in business. <laughs> if you're going to make money and have supporters, you have to, you have to do it right. So Mushing Radio is its own feed, and that's where you can find it. How would you listen to podcasts, Tony? Do you do it through Apple? Do you do it through Spotify? Do you use Stitcher, Google? What do you use? Um, I use Amazon Music. They now have podcasts. So I already have a subscription to that, so I just use that. And uh, then YouTube for those podcasts that also post to YouTube, that's where I find a few of them. And then uh, just directly on their website. Yes, our show is on YouTube, I believe. And we just had 700,000 downloads on YouTube. Most of those are our DogWorks radio podcast. And we just passed over 20,000 subscribers. So people are listening on YouTube. Even if you think it's for videos, <laughs> it's easy to hit that play button on YouTube and Put it on CarPlay or Google Play or whatever you have in the car, and it will play those as well. Tony, thank you very much for joining us. Stay tuned for our next race coverage coming up very soon. Talk to you guys later. Goodbye. From DogWorks Radio, this is Mushing Radio. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we invite you to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. You can tap or swipe on the episode cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. If you like what you have heard, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Your host is Robert Forto. Our producers are Michelle Forto, Alex Stein, and Tony Ryder. Our executive producer is Robert Forto. Created for DogWorks Radio and First Paw Media.